0: Would be a long train ride.
1: That would be a long train ride. All right, friends, welcome to Cabal and Coffee. It's great to see you. It's great to see all of you. Um, I want to say this. Today's class, where's Susan? Susan was here a second. She's still here. I want to tell you this. Today, hey, Susan, today's class, the opening at least, is inspired by Susan's question from last week, which was a great question. What was the question? The question is, if First of all, I should welcome everybody, Cabal and Coffee. It's good to see you all. All right, let's get to the philosophy. The question is like this. If a person can do something wrong, actually, hold on, that's already a judgment. If a person can do something it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. and no one gets hurt, person can commit what otherwise would be a crime, but no one gets hurt, here's the question. Is it indeed considered to be a crime or is it wrong or is it not wrong? So the example that Susan gave, she gave two examples last week. One example is, and Susan, jump in if I'm getting this wrong, because I want to be, be, uh, be true to your, to your question and the debate, because it's, it's such, a good, such a good topic. So here's the question. The question is like this. Imagine if you could steal from someone or something, a corporation, whatever it is, and the other party would never find out about it. It would never hurt them in any way, shape, or form, right? So, essentially, if I, if, and I'm maybe adding in some words that might not be so accurate. So, again, Susan, I'm asking you to keep me in, in line over here with the question. So, essentially, one could posit that there's no victim. So, the question is if there's no victim, is there a crime? Understand the question? In other words, if I'm stealing, if I'm taking money, but there, no one's knowing about it, no one's getting hurt. So is it really a crime? Susan jump in did I get that correct
2: Well I think the question and the debate that's been going on that I've been listening to is it does the uh, obviously we would say from a Jewish perspective that the person doing the wrong, whether it's the committing adultery or embezzling oh, something that would be hurting their soul right but does it hurt the other person?
1: Got it. Uh, you could say Got it.
2: it hurts the relationship, but does it hurt the Got relationship it. if the person doesn't know? So we're looking at, like, the other person. Is the other person really hurt? And the relationship between the two people, if the other person is able to compartmentalize and have a relationship that the other person doesn't know. Is Got that- it. Is that clear?
1: That makes sense. But in that case, I'm going to modify the question. (laughs) If that's the case, then we're going to modify it slightly. We're going to also get to that, the the angle that you're you're, um, um, clarifying. But I do want to begin, I think, with taking a step back. And the taking a step back question would be, is it wrong in the first place if there's no actual victim? In other words, if I commit an action that otherwise would be considered a crime, so to speak. And crime maybe is a, is a heavy word, but something that would be considered wrong otherwise. But it's not hurting anyone. So the question is, is it truly problematic? So I want to tell you this. This is not a new question. It's not a Cabal and Coffee theoretical question. It is a philosophical question that was, that was addressed by the great philosophers of the 18th century. An English philosopher and a... French philosopher. We have uh, Europe representing. You see, um, David, you mentioned that the Falcons are playing this morning in London. So we have English philosophers being, an English philosopher being represented. Jeremy Bentham on one side, the English philosopher from the 1700s, and Immanuel Kant on the other side, who was a French, no, I'm sorry, German, German. German. Scratch all of the, the, rewind the tape. German philosopher, also from the 1700s. This was an epic and fierce philosophical debate. And by the way, it has practical ramifications. One might say, well, who cares? Who cares if you consider um, ethics to be something that is, you know, so that, that's only based on, a, based on someone being a victim or someone not being a victim, The answer is, it's not theoretical, it's practical. The question is, practically speaking, is this right or or is this wrong? So I want to share with you two schools of thoughts. Two schools of thought in in the philosophical realm. One school of thought is what we would call consequentialist moral reasoning. Consequentialist moral reasoning states, essentially, that something is wrong or right based on the consequences. It's a very utilitarian approach. So it says like this, how do you know if something's right or wrong? Just see what the outcome is. If it brings someone pain, it's not good. If it brings someone pleasure, then it's good. That's a very consequentialist way of, of, of deciphering right and wrong. So again, how do I know if this action is right or wrong? Well, what does it lead to? Does it lead to something good or something not good? If it leads to something good, it's good. If it leads to something not good, it's not good. That's how we determine morality and ethics, in the in, in that school of thought. Again, it was, Jeremy Bentham wasn't the only one that uh, that 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 proposed this idea, but he's one of the main articulators of the school of thought. On the other side, we have Immanuel Kant, who says the following. He says that no, there's something called a, not consequentialist, but it is a. What's the other phrase? Hold on, I'll tell you in a second, because I wrote, categorical moral reasoning. Categorical moral reasoning is that things are categorically right or categorically wrong, irrespective of their outcome. Which means that if I do something right that ends up hurting someone, I did the right thing. Conversely, if I do something wrong that ends up not hurting someone, I still did the wrong thing. It's like the philosophical question. You know, if you chop down a tree in the forest and no one... No one hears it, right? So did did it make a sound? So the question is, if I did something wrong, but no one got hurt, is it wrong? He would say yes. Whereas the first side of the, the other side of the coin would say no. If No one was hurt. It's not wrong. Something is only immoral or unethical if it has a negative outcome. If it doesn't have a negative outcome, then it's not a problem. Now, according to According to the consequentialist moral reasoning perspective, that it's all about utilitarianism, it's all about outcomes, it's all about consequences, what happens if this action benefits some and harms others? Right. Remember, his opinion was that morality and ethics is all about do your actions hurt someone or do they benefit someone? Well, what happens if they hurt some and benefit others? So what if, what if it's a mixed bag? Is it right or is it wrong? So his approach is always the greatest good for the greatest number. In other words, it's a numbers game. If more people benefit than are harmed by it, so even if some are harmed by it, it's moral, it's kosher. You go by the outcome and you go by the majority outcome. Uh, this, this is an approach in, in philosophy and ethics. Donna, do you mind bringing over the, um, those copies? Yeah, I, I left them over there. Thank you. This would not be the greatest good for the greatest number if we left the copies. OK, so basically like this, he says that if you have a question whether something's right or wrong, there's no objective standard. you go by what you perceive the outcome to be. And if you have um, and if you have a situation where it's going to be good for some and not good for, for, for others, then you just go by majority. What's the, is, is it mostly right? Is, is it mostly good? Is it mostly not good? And that flips, that determines whether, it's, whether, in his opinion, it's right or wrong. This is why, this is where a common approach to the trolley car problem, or the trolley problem. You know the question about the trolley? No. The moral question about the trolley. Yeah. This is where this comes in. So I'll give you a scenario. This is a classic philosophical scenario. Imagine you are behind the wheel of a trolley car. And you notice as you're at a high rate of speed, not speeding, but at a normal high rate of speed, you recognize, you realize that the brakes have failed. There's no, maybe there's a handbrake situation, whatever it is, the brakes don't exist anymore. And there's no way to stop the trolley car. And you see at the end of the track, there's someone, there's someone at the end of the track who's oblivious, they have their ear pods in, There's no way that they're going to know, and there's no way to stop this tragedy, this tragic accident from happening. Except there's one way to, there's one way to, oh, I'm sorry. Let's say you see, not one person, you see a group of people at the end of this track, right? Four people, four construction workers working on the track. They're all headphones on, whatever it is, they can't hear anything, and there's no way to stop the train. Certain tragedy. There's one thing that you can do, though, as the trolley car operator, and that is you can pull the lever, and there's a a split in the track, right? There's a split in the track, and you can go from the track that you're on to a different track and and avoid these people. The problem is on the other track that you would switch to, there's one person. You with me? So there's four people on this one, and there's no way to stop it. You're going to, God forbid, plow into them. But if you change tracks, you'll avoid the four, but there's one person over there. What do you do? Lay on the horn. (laughs) Dina Malka, I love your way of thinking. (laughs) Lay on the horn. Okay, let's say there's no horn. It's not possible. There's no way to to indicate. Have you guys ever heard this philosophical question before yet? It's a classic, classic philosophical question. And you pose this question to people... Cold or just in a in a you know just in a neutral environment, and because I, I, I've done this before nine out of ten times if not ten out of ten times, pretty much everyone says what do you guys think? What do you do? Yeah, you switch tracks. You take out the one. Why? It's very consequentialist moral reasoning. The greatest good for the greatest number, right? It's a numbers game, right? what What's the right What's the right course of action? Literally, what's the right course of action? It's to take. It's to. It's to minimize. The casualties. And you may call this triage or whatever whatever you want to say, whatever you know, language you want to associate with it, it's basically saying that, it's, that, that what, what is the right or wrong decision or action. In this moment, it's whatever has the greatest good for the greatest number or whatever minimizes the harm for the greatest number. Minimizes the harm for the greatest number and, 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 and lays the harm into the fewest number. Correct? Now it doesn't sound so bad. But you ask the same group of people that said, for sure, you switch tracks. Absolutely, you switch. Let's say there's a wheel. I don't think there's a wheel on the trolley car, but nonetheless, let's say there's a wheel, right? So you would tell the person, if they were asking you the question, right? You, most people would say, you can't stop the trolley car. There's four people there, one person there. Turn the wheel, take out the one. Greatest good for the greatest number. Save four, save three lives, right? Four or one preserve three lives sounds moral sounds correct so that now i need to pose another question let's say you're not the trolley car driver let's say you're standing on a bridge and you see that and you see the trolley car hurtling down and you realize there's no brakes or maybe you realize there's no driver and you, there's a trolley car just hurtling down the path. There's no, it's not stopping. And the four people are at the end of the track, oblivious to what's, what's going to happen. And there's no way to switch. You're not, you're not riding, you're not driving the trolley. There's no way to switch tracks. So, and you're, you're watching this tragedy unfold until you realize that your friend is next to you. And if you push him off the bridge... He'll land on the tracks. The trolley, are you with me on this? The trolley car will hit him, and that will likely stop the momentum of the trolley car and save those four lives. Would you do it? No. Hold on, one second. So we said that you can turn the wheel to take out the one to save the four. Why can't we push the guy to save the Why four? Didn't he jump himself. That's not my question. I, I hear your question. I hear your question. But my question is, right? If we posit that taking out a life to save four lives is a is a moral and ethical course of action, so why 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 did everyone like I saw everyone tense up when I said push off the guy? You're saying where's the lawing? Like, right? No, I'm asking. I'm asking what's the distinction? Yeah. What's the difference?
0: You're sacrificing one person to save a bunch of people.
1: In, in both, both cases.
0: You're deliberately. You're
1: deliberately. I'm deliberately turning the wheel. But same thing. 100. Oh wait, so one second. What if I could turn a wheel and that would make him push off the, the thing? Would that would that help? Let's say it was a it was a trap bridge. When you turn a wheel, the guy falls off the bridge onto the tracks. Is something removed about the turning versus the So I'm asking, what if I could turn a wheel and the guy would fall off the bridge onto the tracks and stop the train? You're saying that only one person would die instead of And one person dies instead of four. You see the problem with our, with our sense of ethics and this is not this is not this is not this is not about you guys. This is about everybody. You ask anybody these questions, this series of questions, everyone has the same reaction. A hundred percent, turn the trolley car, take out the one instead of the four. A hundred percent, never push the guy to, to save four. But you ask people to articulate the difference, and it's a, they can. can't. Because there is no difference. You say, well, one is you're pushing, and one is you're turning. So then my follow-up is, okay, so what if you could just turn a wheel, and the guy falls off the bridge? You still wouldn't do it, still wouldn't do it. But for some reason, in the trolley car, turning the wheel seems like a very moral way of doing things. This is the problem that you get into when, you, when our, pers- not you, this is the problem that we get into when our perspective on ethics and morality is based on a consequentialist perspective. When it's all about utilitarianism, when it's all about a numbers game, We get into very sticky territory because yes, one is definitely, one casualty is certainly the better option than four casualties, right? One is better than four. But to say that we would actively take out one to save four seems wrong, although turning a wheel is actively putting that one person in danger when they weren't in danger before. Maybe I should clarify that. When the trolley car in the first scenario is hurtling down the track. Headed toward the four. That one person on a completely different track is not a danger. For the trolley car driver to turn the wheel to take out that one person is to initiate danger and harm and death to that one person that was not standing in danger's way. And yet... Like
0: they, see it. they see it like they're, they're, well, they don't want
1: to go into those floors, so they're trying to protect the... Sure. And-, and you have to understand, Tesla's dealing with this right now. You know, Tesla this weekend was supposed to roll out a, a, a full self-driving I lo- you gotta love this guy, Elon Musk. You have to love him with his, with his. It's it's. Listen, I, I mean that like on many different levels. I don't mean literally, but I mean this guy is not afraid to throw out terms when it's completely not applicable. Full self-driving. You have to be behind the wheel with your hands near nearby and always always aware. But it's full self-driving. Okay, whatever. But here's the point. Here's the point. Um, whoever is programming these cars has to make these decisions, right? What happens if, for whatever reason, there's a mechanical failure and the brakes are failing and the car is headed down to a group of people? It's at night. It's a Saturday night. There's a group of people and the car is moving at a high rate of speed and a bunch of people walk in middle of the road. And there's no way for the car, either there's a failure or there's no way for the car to break. But what it could do is turn the wheel. But if it turns the wheel, there's one person toward the side. You don't think Tesla has had to figure this out? Someone behind the computer somewhere has had to have this conversation internally or with a group. Now, what they have done, no one knows because this is completely locked in. There is no oversight. There's no transparency in this. But you better believe That whoever has been thinking about the problem or the issue of self-driving automobiles, self-driving vehicles, autonomous vehicles, whether it's full or partial or even lane assist, these types of questions, really partial, partial, um, has had to think about these questions of what to do when there will definitely be some harm. The question is, who gets harmed? There's another question that one could ask. What happens if the car has to choose between protecting the passenger or the pedestrian? What happens if the car is moving at a high rate of speed and suddenly out of nowhere, which has happened, a truck appears I and mean, there's been a few accidents like that where the Teslas have not picked up the, the truck for whatever reason on intersections. There's a truck that pulls out, maybe the reflection, the glare, whatever. The truck pulls out. But this time, the Tesla, the, this it doesn't have to be Tesla. The, 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 the software detects it. There's no way to stop before it smashes, and it's going to kill the passengers, the driver, the passengers, et cetera, any, the occupants of the car. Or it could, at the last second, turn the car, but there's a person over there. Does it protect the, the passengers or the pedestrian? Um, you, you have to know that if, if you know anything about programming, these, th- these things have to be thought. You can't, the computer. Right? The software can't decide on its own. It's not how it works. Even artificial intelligence doesn't actually mean that it's thinking on its own. Even artificial intelligence is the composite of data and facts that are put into comp- uh, 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 computations, that are put into the software that are able then to learn the, the, the results that you wanted and then base on that and, 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 and continue that and maybe even expand in some, in some limited scenarios. But it's essentially a, a, a product of the information that you put in. You have to tell it what to do, essentially. At least in the beginning, you have to tell it what to do. So believe me that these questions have been thought about and discussed, and someone's, someone somewhere or some people somewhere have made a decision in these questions, in these cases. But these are real questions, real-life questions. And really, it comes down to, do we believe in... Do we believe that morality is, is all about consequence, the greatest good for the greatest number, or is there an absolute imperative for, uh, with, within, within morality and within ethics? In other words, is taking a life wrong? If taking a life is wrong, it doesn't matter what, whether it's one or 500 or a million or whatever it is. If, if taking a life is wrong, it's wrong, which means that if I'm behind the wheel of the trolley car and I choose, See, at this point, it's a mechanical failure. It's not my choice. If I choose to turn the wheel, I am choosing to take a life. I didn't choose the four, but I'm choosing the one. If it's absolute, then how can I choose? If it's absolute, how can I choose to push someone off a bridge? I'm taking a life. Torah law says you cannot take a life to save a life. The famous story in the Talmud, a group, a group, a group of robbers came over to a group of people, Jewish people, and they said, Hand over one, or else we kill you all. Thomas says, What do you do? And the answer is, You don't give over to anyone. You cannot sacrifice a life to save even a number.
0: Can you even sacrifice yourself?
1: That's a big question in Jewish law. It's a big question. Could you step up and sacrifice yourself for the others? It's one of those things that likely the, the law doesn't mandate, but it wouldn't be held spiritually against you if you did it. In other words, it's not like you could tell someone you have to do it. Yeah. But if one chooses to do it, certainly it wouldn't be a problem. It would be perhaps laudatory. Again, there is a bit, a bit of discussion about that. But understand this, that the, the, the simple calculation of, well, look, if there's a group of ten and the bad guys are asking for one, so you draw, you draw lots, you hand over one to save the group. That's, that's the one is better than, than ten, right? One is, or you're saving nine lives. Doesn't always work like that. It doesn't work like that because if one life is, is if, if nine lives, if ten lives are sacred, one life is sacred. Every life is uh, is, is, um, is valuable. Okay, I want to check in because I feel like there's a lot of moving pieces here. I want to make sure that, that we're all getting this. All right, Susan, jump in. I see you got your hand up. Yeah. Okay. Hey, um,
2: uh, are we going to get to the, the idea that uh, ethics could be not the actual action but the intention or motivation behind it? For example, when you said, "just unequivocally, you can't take a life," you know, just thinking about that idea that you hear, like you can put a knife in someone to kill them, or you can put a knife into someone to to uh, give that, you know, to for surgery, for example. Right. 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 So the the intention, the the still the action is the same, and so if you said you can't, you know, uh, you know, the, so you're thinking more about the the motivation behind the. What's happening? So I wonder if where that's going to fall in these two ideas behind ethics.
1: In other words, you're saying if it's not just action, it's not just action and outcome. You're adding another layer, intention. You're, you're adding another layer of intention to it. Is that am I am I understanding you correctly? Yes. Got it. But
2: I don't know if that really answers our question that we're after at the beginning. But I'm right. just thinking about this in terms of these two. Uh, philosophies of thought around ethics. Right,
1: right, 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 right. the there's
2: no black and white. You have to look at, it's so contextual.
1: It's very contextual, right, right, right. So I think that if you're looking at it through a consequentialist moral reasoning perspective, Jeremy Bentham, right, if you're looking at it from a perspective of, okay, what's the outcome? So then I think that the intention is probably less important as to what the perceived, what the, expected outcome is going to be. So giving a knife to a child would be probably leading to a negative outcome versus, um, giving a knife to someone who's cutting a birthday cake. So you would have to, I think, take into account in the intention stage, what the likely outcome would be to then figure out, well, is this action moral or is it immoral? Um, when you talk about the other perspective, right, the Immanuel Kant perspective of, um, uh, categorical moral reasoning where things are just apt, just right or wrong so he famously, he was challenged about this when it came to truth and honesty he said, they, they, right, and the famous question was what if a, an assassin, murderer asks you the whereabout of their, um, their, their their wanted victim right, someone says, listen I'm trying to kill so and so right, I need to take him out but I don't know where he is, and I feel like you know where he is, do you know where he is? should you lie or should you not lie? Right. And it seems obvious. Lie. I, don't have, I have no idea who this is. I can't help you. But Immanuel Kant would say, no, truth is an absolute moral imperative. And because it's absolute, you have to tell, tell the truth. Consequences be darned. Right. Doesn't matter what the consequences are. I have to be I have to do what's right. Many of us would call that masuga. Right. Are you kidding me? That's crazy. And yet that's, that's a valid perspective. So I don't know how that fits in. That, that angle fits in with intention versus action. But I think on that level, intention and action are also kind of intertwined. It's kind of like your intention in this action, is it, according to your perception, is it what is, what is demanded of you morally in this moment or is it not? Is it, is it morally the right thing or is it not? And not, not looking at the consequence of the action, but in this moment. In this slice of a moment, if you know something and someone asks you if you know it, to say that you don't is wrong. Even though your intention is to save someone else, forget intention. Like, what's your? What are you doing right now? Is it right or is it wrong? It's a very. It's a very. It's a yeah, very. That that approach is very difficult. So each one has its disadvantage. According to the first, first approach, there's no there's no there's no line of right or wrong. It's just like you take a poll, like. How, how, is, this go, is this good for y'all or is it not good for y'all? And that, that, that determines morals. It's very much like backwards driven. According to the second, second opinion, the categorical moral, moral reasoning approach, there are things that are black and white, but the problem is if, if you take that too, too literally or too, um, uh, yeah, too extremely, then it leads to a world like Kant says where he actually, he doubled down on it. He said, yeah, you have to tell the person where the person is. So it, it cre- uh, there's a third approach, which is the Jewish approach. Always the best. <laughs> but we'll talk about that in a second. But it's, um, that's where we're going with today's class. As you could probably imagine, this was not just a random philosophy class. This is, this is Kabbalah and coffee, after all. I in the email last night that we're going to be discussing the, the origin of ethics and the definition of ethics from a Jewish and mystical perspective. So we're getting there. But I first want to lay out the limitations of the two systems, the two most popular system, that systems that have been debated in philosophy. Yes, I
0: remember a class where you were teaching that um, a person is not obligated to give up their life to save another. Right. You use this thing like if you were in the desert, you only had, you know, a couple drops of water. You have to give it. Cures right. With the other person. you're not required to give up your life Correct. to save another.
1: Correct. Yeah. So that's addressing Adam's question, right? You're not obligated mm-hmm. to give up your life to save others. The question really is, though, are you even allowed to? Or is it considered to be like suicide, like something that like someone is? In other words, are you even allowed to if you're feeling noble and feeling like that? Or is it? Or is it reckless? Is it recklessly endangering one's one's own life? Someone else's life is in danger. That's not my thing. Now in this case it's a little bit different because as one of the ten, your life would also be in danger. So it's really not do it's not moving danger to a place where it wasn't. It's just taking all of that danger and and releasing the others from it, if that makes sense, right? So in a case where, for example, someone sees someone else, God forbid, drowning, you know, in in in, in swift currents, and they're not sure if they can jump in and save them and pull them out, or if they're also going to get caught in. It's a, it's a split-second decision. Do you jump in or do you not jump in? Torah law doesn't mandate jumping in if there's, a, if there's concern about your own life. You don't have to sacrifice your life. You don't have to. You're not obligated. Again, what a mitzvah could mean one of two things, either an obligation or a good deed. No one would argue that it's not a good deed. It's not a noble thing to do. The question is, is it a mitzvah? mitzvah means an obligation, is it an obligation to give up your life for someone else's? No, there's no obligation. There's an obligation to save someone else's life through your effort, through your money, through your, you know, through every anything that's in your power to do, but to the point of giving up your life, that's beyond what Torah law would mandate. The question that's asked also, just parenthetically, in the halakhic text is what about giving up a limb? What if somebody this and this question was actually discussed I believe it happened, this is going back hundreds of years, where there was a dictator, whatever it is, came, whatever the scenario was, came to a Jew and said, consent to me taking off one of your limbs, or I'm going to kill this other guy. So do you have to consent to losing a limb, God forbid, to save the life of another? And the answer is, you don't have to. It's not, it's not, you have to, Money, ransom, raise money, you know, go fund, whatever you have to do to, to save a life, but to, to, to lose a limb in the process? I mean, if you want to, that's another question, but to, to obligate it. So this, this comes into, in halachic in discourse, this is actually a very modern question. Does one have to donate an organ to save someone else's life? Is it Jew? Is it is it, we know that to save a life, you know, it's the greatest mitzvah to save a life, but well, what about if it causes a loss of a limb or an internal organ? So if it's a lobe of liver, for example, that, that regenerates, not a loss, it's one thing. But what about donating a kidney? It doesn't come back, right? It's, it's a loss of a kidney. So the question is, is that obligatory? The answer is it's not obligatory in Jewish law. Because even though it's saving a life, it's not something that, 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 is, uh, that is mandated, that is binding as, as an obligation. Yeah, Donna, jump
0: I would imagine that the, the software developers of coding, are also talking to the actuaries and insurance companies to see which they should prioritize which life. You know, like we had, I think it was Mr. Feynman? Right? Yeah,
1: um, you know, the- Howard, you know, the- Howard. World War II. How, How- World War Howard Maybe. Fe- Maybe. Um, Feinberg.
0: Yeah, Feinberg. You know. Howard?
1: Not I mean, not Howard. Um, Kenneth, Kenneth Feinberg. By the way, they're doing a movie about him. I just saw, I saw Kenneth Feinberg, the guy who's the special master of the 9-11 Victims so, Fund. Yeah, so, the whole, yeah. so, right, so that's probably how, how they're going to decide. Which right, so let me, let me, let me repeat to, the, to our online crew. So um, Don is saying that um, perhaps it's very likely that the Tesla, whoever is, 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 is um, coding the software and, and, and setting the algorithms, is probably in touch with uh, the insurance underwriters to figure out you know, what's advantageous to, uh, to all put a, put a value on life and a value and assess it. necessity? Yeah. Um, what was I going to say also pursuant to that? I forgot. Okay, yeah. But it's, it's a very complicated question, and it's a real-time, it's a real-time question. Look, what somebody does in the moment, right, if somebody's behind the wheel and God forbid is faced with that choice, right, there's a group and then there's a single person and, and they turn the wheel or don't turn the wheel, I don't believe any court or anyone would hold that person responsible for a split-second decision because you do what you do, you know, what happens, happens. But there's no emergency now. You're sitting behind the computer coding, right? There's no, there's no split-second decision. I mean, the car will tr- it will be triggered in a split-second and it will react. But you now have the benefit. You, the coder, the designer, the philosopher, the ethicist, have the benefit of thinking about this, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with a glass of scotch, or maybe it's not a good thing to think about when you're drinking this guy, but you, you with, you know, in a, in a calm, you know, wearing fuzzy slippers and, uh, and, and, and comfortable clothing. So you can, you can think about this in the comfort of your own home and come up with what, what you believe is, is moral or ethical. But it all comes down to really two different paths. Do we believe that morality is a product of the consequence, in which case we look at the greatest good for the greatest number, and that becomes right. And what creates the greatest harm for the greatest number becomes what's wrong. Or do we say, no, there are things that are objectively right and objectively wrong. Let me check in on the chat here, because it looks like we have some, some, uh, some things that were written here. Give me a second. Right, the tree falling in a forest, good. Um, right for the wrong reasons, wrong for the right reasons. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Industrial advancement and in the carbon footprint, good or bad, good. Industrial advancement. What if you have no choice? Yeah. Probably less inclined when the action seems more in a direct push. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very good points in the chat. Very good points. I don't know that I can add anything that intelligent to what's, to what's been written in the chat. I think very good points to think about. Um, when we think about, you know, actions. Like Alex mentioned, um, industrial revolution. Industrial advance, advancement, not revolution. That's going back a few years. But industrial advance, advancement, we're, we're creating more things, but at the same time, we're taking out the environment with it. Good or not good, moral or, or, or immoral. It benefits some, it harms others. I mean, it's kind of like real estate in a, in a in a community, right? Prices go up, it benefits some, and it hurts others. It benefits, right? I mean, this is... It's very hard because we live in a world in which good is mixed with the opposite ever since that sin, right? Good and not good. Is, it's very, it's, I'm going to say very hard. What I mean is impossible. It's impossible to have something that's purely good that has no side effects. It's, it's almost impossible. Yeah. Eh. Try to minimize. It. Is you can't
2: predict everything. Right. I turned in an embezzler and he went to... Federal person and is now no longer living. Hmm. But one thing happened that I didn't count on and when he was threatened by being exposed, he murdered somebody.
1: Wow. That's a heavy story. Can I repeat the story? All right. Anna's telling a story that she turned in an embezzler, which is a good thing, right? Stopping the embezzlement, etc. But in in the course of that um And the course of that playing out, this fellow murdered someone. Maybe a witness? A witness. witness. So these are unintended consequences. Bring someone to justice, which seems like a good thing. You're you're preventing victims from being harmed, but creating a new victim in the process. And sometimes it's impossible to proceed. Thank you for sharing that story. That's a crazy story. Wow. Um, Wow. That's that's an incredible story. Um, It's and it's really like that. It's like any time you see a model, you know, an economic model, like, OK, if we do this, that, or the like, it's, you can't know what you don't know. But even when you know that you probably don't know, you still don't know exactly how it's going to play out. It's like you can perceive. It's like everyone has ideas. Like, if you raise the minimum wage, it's going to be good, or it's not going to be good. If you give, you know, government, um, you know, government, uh, like. Subsidy, or like what they did a few months ago, when they the, the, payments, cash the payments, cash payments, or whatever it is. So good for the economy, not good for the economy. Does it lead to inflation or not? I mean, it's you have a mod, models from here to tomorrow. Who knows what's going to happen? And I'm not. It's not a political thing. It's a, it's a life thing because we don't know when you hit one button, when you press this thing. You know how do the dominoes fall? And sometimes they might fall this way or that way. It could go either way sometimes. Anyway, it's a a lot of conversation. So I think what Anne's point is, which is a very important point, is if you take the first approach, which is the consequentialist, approach, which is saying, well, let's just see what the outcome is going to be and then work backwards. You don't even know the outcome sometimes. (laughs) How do you even know the outcome? So it's maybe there's more comfort in saying, look, let's just decide that this is right and this is wrong and that's it and move from there. That's one approach to avoid that. I'll tell you the Jewish approach because I know you guys are waiting for it. So the Jewish approach is like this. Now, you're probably not surprised to to know or to learn. I'm sure you're not learning right now that Judaism believes that things are absolutely right and absolutely wrong. Right? We have the Torah. The Torah doesn't shy away from saying, do this, don't do that. The Torah doesn't say, by the way, if this will work out, no problem. If it's not going to work out, then maybe you should avoid it. That's not a Torah. That's not the language. This isn't the verbiage of Torah. The Torah says, do this, do not do this. Look at the Ten Commandments. By the way, speaking of the Ten Commandments, so famously, the Ten Commandments were originally depicted on, by God, engraved on two? Sapphire. Sapphire. Well, I don't know if the original was sapphire. Certainly the second ones were, but two tablets. Two tablets. Okay, and the way it worked was that the two tablets, one had five commandments and the other had five commandments. And as I've explained in other classes and other contexts, there are two ways to read the Ten Commandments. You could read them one through 10. So, like in a list form, like this, like we have two columns, right? These are your two tablets for today's uh, demonstration. It we'll would be right to left because it's Hebrew. So, we would have like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and you would read it, boom, boom. But there's another way to read it, and that is across. Let's say you don't respect the divide and you just go right across 1, 6, 2, 7, 3, 8, 4, 9, 5, 10. There's a way to understand the Ten Commandments that way. There are layers of commentary when you read it laterally as opposed to horizontally versus vertically. So I'll share with you one that the Rebbe explained. What's one and what's number five? What's, sorry, one and six, not one and five. One and six. What's one and six? One is? No, so it's one through five and then six through, right? So the top one's on both columns. So number one is, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? I am? Yeah, I am the Lord your God. I am God. Mm-hmm. Right? And then the flip side is don't have any other. So I'm God. What's number six? Do, it's the first of the do nots. Do not murder. Don't take a life. And the rabbit said that significantly, the two are parallel each other. Because the reason why taking a life is wrong is because I am the Lord your God. In other words, it's an absolute. It's not taking a life is not wrong because we think it's wrong or it's going to hurt someone or it's not about the consequence. Why is it wrong? I am the Lord your God. In other words, it's absolutely wrong. Which means, and the Rebbe said this in in the context of Nazi Germany, because the Rebbe spent time in the 1930s in Berlin. As you may or may not know, the Rebbe studied at the University of Berlin in the 1930s. He then studied at Sorbonne later. But the Rebbe studied at the University of Berlin. The Rebbe said, I was in Germany before World War II. Very moral, ethical, very educated, maybe he didn't say moral, ethical, very educated and sophisticated people. At the height of of intellect and advancement. The top of the game. The top of Europe. So how could they descend into such barbaric behavior? Simple. Simple. They divorced commandment number six from commandment number one. And when you divorce six from one, then do not murder is, well, only if it's a problem. But if it's going to benefit society, if it's going to rid society of undesirables, if it's going to create a better society in the process, sure. And that was their reason. They had a logical reason why this is not immoral why this is not unethical, why this is not horrific. They had a reason, a rationale. They had an explanation, a philosophy why this was actually a good thing. When you, minim- when you reduce ethics and morality to a philosophical conclusion, all bets are off and danger abounds. Does this make sense? Yes. So the Rebbe said, what is the antidote? The antidote is to co-join 1 and 6 and say, murder is wrong because it's absolutely wrong, because God Almighty told us it's wrong. So therefore, even if I have a reason why I might think there's an exception to the rule, my, my reasoning is false. What's the, um, what's the Latin phrase for it? Like, from the beginning it's wrong, whatever that phrase is. I'm sure there's a Latin phrase that would fit in very nicely if I knew more Latin, right? From the beginning it's wrong. In Hebrew we call it not only at the end it's wrong, but in the beginning it's wrong. It Does this make sense? It is. Yes? Okay. Now, so like yes. The
0: States, is police force? Police, the most cases,
1: are allowed to take someone's
0: life in their mind they think they're just about to
1: take else's life Right. So that would not be So now you're asking... So Don is asking the question, what about if one f- one feels that their life is in danger, are they allowed to preemptively act... No,
0: so the policeman is allowed to take person X's life because they believe that
1: person X is going to take person Y's life. doesn't have to be a police, it's not a police question. It's a question, in, it, it could be any question. Like, what if, what if a person sees someone who looks like they're going to take someone else's life? Are you allowed to intervene and take the, the, right. the perpetrator's life? The, the not yet, but soon to be, you believe, perpetrator's life. So this gets into a conversation that Torah, the same God that says, do not murder, also says... That if you see someone taking someone's life, you're allowed to step in and using up to leth- up to and including lethal force, but not if that's not required. So if lethal force is not required and lethal force is u- to stop the threat. But if, le- le- if lethal force is used, when it's not required, then that's an act of murder. So there are other forms of incapacitation that must be used before lethal force. But if that's the only way, then one is allowed to use it, Why? Because the same God that says do not murder also says that to stop a murder, you're allowed to take, you're allowed to, because it's not, it's considered more like stopping a bullet, if you will. Are you allowed to destroy the bullet to save a life? The answer is yes. And I know now it sounds like we're walking back the absolute nature of it. But again, the same, it's not, it's not absolute for the sake of absolute. It's absolute because... God gave, us a, God gave us a call. God gave us a, um, a moral framework around it, which includes some nuance on it. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When it comes to Jewish morality and Jewish ethics, there's a very important consideration. And that is, that even as a value is absolutely moral or immoral, right? There are still, there are still other values. Again, so even as, let's say something is, is, is an absolute value. This is a value, it's a good thing. That doesn't preclude the possibility of there being other absolute values that are equally important. So let me explain. So let's say that Judaism believes that truth is an absolute value, which it is. Does God's seal is truth, okay. so truth is an absolute value, and we even had that God's that, that phrase God's seal is truth in our discourse in a previous session. Like God's stamp, like if God were to have a monogram, it would say M S Truth, Emmet, Truth. Good. So does that mean if the murderer comes to you and says, "Hey, where's uh, this fellow? I want to kill him," do you do you, do you tell the truth? You don't, but isn't that an absolute value? It is, but there's another absolute value. Saving someone's life. So now the question is, when you have two conflicting absolute values, so which one has priority? So here we have, so, goes on, here we have, so there's a lot of discussion in Jewish law about when you have a conflict of priorities, when you have a conflict of absolute values, which one falls away? So in that case, life would supersede truth. Peace also supersedes truth, which is why one is allowed to modify the truth for the sake of peace.
0: You had uh, talked about martyrdom and um, and Judaism, how some people refuse to lie that they weren't Jews. Right. So they, and
1: then, I mean... Adam's asking a great question. Yeah. So when a person, when a Jew historically was asked to say that they're not Jewish or else they'll be put to death, so why not lie and say, sure, I don't believe anymore in Judaism. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say. To lie, to save one's own life. It seems like... Bending the truth is is is, somebody else? I mean, is much more preferred, so? right? It seems yeah. much more preferred than than losing one's own life, right? If life overrides overrides um, if life overrides um, truth, so how come it doesn't do, do so in in one's one's own case? So the answer is that there are three mitzvot that never get overridden. That is idolatry adultery, and murder. Those are the big three. So those are the three exceptions. So for example, if someone says to someone, take out a life to save your own life, you can't do it. Someone says, serve an idol or profess to believe in something else, whatever. Or else, your life is in danger, you can't do it. And if someone says, engage in in, an immoral relationship, or else you also can't do it. So those are the big three. How do we know this? The Talmud gets into it, gets into the details. So it's based on verses, it's based on the Torah. It's it's not necessarily a rational thing why these three things are considered to be the big three, the big three cardinal sins, but that's the way they are um, understood in Jewish law. I told a story uh, before, you may remember it. I told a story about a fellow that I once met whose father was a psychologist who lived in Canada, I believe in Toronto. And after the war, he saw a lot of survivors. A lot of survivors would come to him. He was a Jewish psychologist in Toronto, and he would see, on occasion, uh, survivors. There was one survivor who came to him just racked with guilt, just like he couldn't, um, couldn't live with himself. Basically, an SS officer gave him... I don't know if he gave him a gun, because then... But he basically said, you have to kill your father or else I'll call you. And he saved his own life. And he was just absolutely guilt-ridden for the rest of it. I mean, you can imagine. So Jewish law would say, again, it's not judgment against anybody in, in any moment. It's just, you know, again, armchair Jewish lying. Armchair Jewish lying would be, no, you cannot take someone else's life even to preserve your own. So even though life, preservation of life is such a high value, not when it takes a life, not when it means... Um, you know, kind of getting involved in um, lack of faithfulness to God or to our relationship. So that's that's the that's the framework where the, that's where the exception comes in. Yeah. Didn't you
0: know, we just say that you're not obligated to give your life to save somebody else?
1: In this case, you're not giving your life. You're not. We uh, I Well, no. I, I, I said again.
0: Shoot your father, or else we'll shoot you. Right. I mean, you're saving. You're not
1: obligated. In, in other words, in that case, you have to not do anything. Inaction is, is what you need to do, or not to. Yeah, because but
0: isn't inaction also still a choice? I mean, if, because you know what's going to happen. Inaction
1: is a, right now. It's a good question. Inaction is a choice, but it's 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 not an active choice. It's not an active action. That's why letting go of the steering wheel is preferable to turning the wheel and taking out the one. Because if you turn the wheel, that's you killing. That one person. Not doing anything, I mean, you can't hit the brakes. So not doing anything is not you killing those four. It's, the, it's, it's an accident. It's not you doing it. It's the circumstances. The question really is like this. What happens if, theoretically, someone fires a, uh, a weapon? Is one allowed to duck if by ducking it's going to hit the person behind them? You with me? You're saving your own life, but because of that, you're putting the other person's life at risk. When Let's just, maybe not a bullet, because maybe it would take up both. So let's just think of another scenario, like a bow and an arrow, or something else that wouldn't do double damage, or only hurt one, or only injure or, or kill one. Anyway, there's a lot of, these are, these are very good questions, and I'm not, I'm not, try, I'm not um, trying to give like quick answers. These are very good questions. But it all circles around the question of how we view ethics. And how we view ethics is a very tricky situation. Some of us instinctively view ethics in a, in a categorical way. This is right and this is wrong and I don't care what happens, but this is right and this is wrong. Some of us view it more in a consequentialist fashion. It's like, okay, so is it is it going to end up good? Is it going to end up not good? And Torah kind of has a, you know a bit of this and a bit of that. Torah says that things are there are, there are absolute values, and absolute, there is absolute morality. However, you also have to look at the outcome. So in the case of the murderer that's looking for the victim, you answer, you lie to save a life, right? In certain cases, maybe you wouldn't lie to save a life, as, you know, based on some exceptions. Either way, here's where I want to bring it back to the Kabbalah and to our conversation. When we think about, and, and by a very quick intro, the book that we're studying is called Overcoming Folly. And there's one objective to this book. If you had to boil it down, it's a lot of pages, like 400 pages. If you had to boil it down to one point, it's this. Every decision we make, even if we're not aware of it, requires an intellectual choice. We never solely make decisions from the heart. It always, at some point, is signed off on by the brain, by the mind, which is a positive because that means that if we can slow down the process, we can change our typical reactions, our typical reaction choices. So typically, a scenario comes up, we have a choice, we make an action, and we're not even necessarily aware of why we, we, make, we make a choice, why we made that choice. Why did we make that choice and not the other choice? Who knows? It happened so fast. The goal of this text is simple. One thing, slow down the decision-making process. Slow it down. First of all, number one, be aware that a decision is being made. Be aware that the brain is signing off on saying, yes, I think this is a good idea, number one. Number two, slow that process down. Number three, interject. In the case of a negative decision, Inter- negative choice. Interject a competing idea that might flip the choice in the other direction. So instead of me saying, "Oh, this looks good, I'm going to do it," I should say, "It looks good. One second. So now I want to do it, but let me think about let me think about some other considerations that I wouldn't think of if I was moving so fast through this process. Does that make sense? It's basically, slow that da- slow down the process so that I have a chance of introducing some other information. Into the into the scenario, so as to make a better choice, a different choice. Um... Yeah, Dan.
0: Yes, uh, <clears throat> there are people that refuse to get uh, vaccinated against COVID, and, the, and and they're endangering themselves, but also endangering people around them, right. family. Right teacher, their
1: students, and so forth, what would Jewish ethics say about... You know, when it comes to, listen, I, I, I feel like when it comes to vaccination and um, for whatever reason, it's a, it's a hot button topic, so we'll, we'll have to, let's stick theoretical and we'll have, uh, we can do the after class schmooze about, uh, about, about hot, hotter-button topics. But I think like this. If we have the opportunity and the ability to slow our decision-making down, we are more likely to make a better decision. And it's predicated on how we... Out, I think the very first class on this book, I said the following. Why is it that we often look back and, and say to ourselves, oh, what did I do? Can't believe I did that. Or we say to somebody, I'm so sorry, it wasn't me. It was you. You made the decision, you made the choice, you took that action. So, what, what, what's the regret now? The regret is now you realize something that you weren't thinking about in the moment. It's not that you, were, you weren't capable of, of realizing it in the moment, it's that you weren't choosing to think about it in the moment, or you weren't thinking about it in the moment, because it was all going so fast. So, what's important is to be able to slow down the process, to slow down the, um, the decision making process, so that we can introduce new information so as to make A better decision. And this benefits us, it benefits those around us, etc. So when it comes to making bad decisions, one of the reasons, one of the rationalizations that we tell ourselves, one of the stories, one of the narratives that goes on in our heads is, there's no no one that's getting hurt in this, and no one's going to find out about it. No one's going to find out about it. Oh, no one's going to get hurt. Let's move away from "no one's going to get hurt." Let, let's, let's focus because the specific chapter twelve, specifically discourse twelve, specifically focuses on the idea that no one's going to find out about it. Which to me means also no one's going to get hurt by it because if no one knows, it's not. Then it's it's just it's just it's just a me thing. It's not an anyone else thing. But no one's going to find out about it also means that I won't have any embarrassment over something that. I've done that if others found out about it, might be embarrassing. So here, my calculus is as follows. I have a choice now to do this thing or to not do this thing. If I do this thing, I know it's wrong, right? But no one's going to find out about it, which means that maybe it's not so wrong, right? Maybe it's not so bad. If no one finds out about it, then maybe that, that flips it. So again, if we're looking at morality through a consequentialist moral reasoning perspective, then the consequences, right? It's all about consequence. So what are the consequences here? None. No one's going to find out about it. So if no one finds out about it, so then what are the consequences? Garnished. It's just me and my choice, and that's it. And I'll live with myself, and, then, and that's fine. But if we look at things from a categorical moral reasoning perspective, that things are just right or wrong, then the calculus shifts a little bit. Then it's like, well, one second. Even if no one finds out about it, even if no one will ever know, it's still wrong. What Discourse 12 says is it adds a wrinkle to it. It says, yes, to be, number, to the second point, that things are, are either right or wrong, just in a, in a categorical way. But in addition to that, who's to say that no one will find out about it? Right? When we think that no one find, that no one find out about it, not so fast. People find out about lots of things that we thought they wouldn't find out about. In fact, God has a way of making sure that the things that we are doing to avoid public knowledge that those things will leak to the public. Uh, to the public. So let's, let's do this inside now. And Donna, yeah, jump in. Yeah,
0: so last week you also said, even, let's say that no one has found out about whatever, it doesn't hurt. It does change, like in a relationship, it changes the person that's doing that.
1: Changes the dynamic, absolutely. Right. Even if you think, so that that notion of, oh, it's not going to hurt anybody, that's still the rationalization of the evil inclination that says, that's trying to get us over the hurdle of, oh, no, should I do it, should I not do it? Come on, do it, no one's going to find out about it. Whether or not that's true, as we'll see, uh, remains to be determined. But even if it were to be true, we still have the other idea that it's still wrong, even if no one finds out about it. Um, But we're going to deal with that first part more, more intensely in this discourse. All right. Let's jump inside. I'm going to share my screen so that everybody's on the same page here. Um, in the in the handouts or in the book, it's page 184, discourse number 12. Um, I'm going to start reading. The Yetzer Hara at work. Yetzer Hara, of course, is the evil inclination. And what is the evil inclination? That means that the part, the voice inside of us that convinces us to do something negative. Um, and whose voice is that? It's our voice. It's our. It's one of our inner voices. We have a lot of inner voices. We hear lots of voices. That's one of them at play. So here we go. Let's jump in. Discourse 12, chapter 1. Um, I believe Discourse 12 is only one chapter. So this is the one and only chapter of Discourse 12, which means that theoretically, we could... Yeah, I think we should be able to do this today. Another enticement of the eight Sahara is that no one will see him. In other words, another narrative of the evil inclination, another narrative of the inner voice that gets us into trouble is... Oh, don't worry. Do it. No one's going to find out about it anyway. No one's going to see him. Him meaning third person. But if we're speaking like more directly, no one will know. No one will see you. You're fine. You're safe. No one's going to ever find out. Why? why? Why Why is this voice necessary? For the sinner does not want others to know of his failings. Because if everything we did, if we, if if we were in middle of a room, surrounded by others with a spotlight on us, we wouldn't do most of the things that we do that aren't good. We wouldn't do it. It just wouldn't happen. Why? Because others are watching. So why do we do it when others aren't watching? Because we say, well, no one's watching and no one's going to know about it. So I feel, I feel a little safer. This is, there's a great story of the Talmud that follows. Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai. You should know who is Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai. He lived at the time of the second temple, and he's the one that went to the emperor Vespasian, the Roman emperor, sorry, the Roman general who became the Roman emperor, Roman general Vespasian, and he asked that even as the temple be destroyed, that the Romans allow for Torah scholarship and Jewish continuity to resume in the city called Yavneh, one of the cities in Israel. And he was instrumental in Judaism adapting to a post-temple reality. So Rabbi Yocham and Zakkai was the greatest of the great. So listen to this. Rabbi Yochanem and Menzakeh blessed his pupils. Uh, sorry, another point. This was on his deathbed right before he passed away. His students said, share with us one piece of wisdom before you die. And he said the following. May your fear of heaven be like your fear of flesh and blood. In other words, your fear of God should be like your fear of others. And his, his pupils protested. Is that it? That, we shouldn't fear God more than people? It should be just to that level as people? In other words, and no, more, and no more than the fear of flesh and blood, as Rashi explains, that they're saying, Rabbi, you're just saying just like people? Not God shouldn't be even more reverential than, shouldn't have more reverence for God than other people? So the rabbi answered, he responded, Halavai, if only, if only you had as much reverence for God or fear of God as you do for other people. In other words, if only it could be that strong, for then you would not sin. When someone commits a sin secretly out of fear of other people, knowing that everything is revealed to God, yet he does not desist, he says, I hope no one sees me. In other words, a person on their own in the privacy of their own home does whatever they do and says, Well, at least no one's going to find out about it. What about God? Well, at least no one else finds out about it because that doesn't. The fact that God is always watching doesn't necessarily hold a person back, whereas if others were there, he wouldn't do it. So, what's the point of all this? The point is that in this checkpoint, I'm going to call it a checkpoint, this mental checkpoint, in order to act on something, it has to pass the mental checkpoint. So the mental checkpoint (coughs) to allow this action to happen, part of the calculus, part of the, the narrative is, oh, no one will find out about it, you're good. So if no one will know, you're fine, go ahead, proceed. The gate opens, the action continues. No one knows about it. What do you mean no one knows about it? What about God? In this manner, the eight Zahar entices man that no one will ever see, no one will see or ever know of his misdeeds. So he addresses this, this as a folly, right? This is called overcoming folly, which means that the narratives, the stories we tell ourselves are not true. And he says right here, second line, second paragraph, but it just isn't so. And that's why this is a folly. The folly is no one will find out. Or the, the narrative is no one will find out. That's the justification, that's the rationalization. No one's going to know about it. I'm safe. But it just isn't so. People do see, they do know, and do recognize him for what he is. Without fail, he will do something to make people suspicious. No one's that good. No one's that good to live a double life is what he's positing here. Now, (laughs) your mileage may vary, some better than others, but nonetheless, he's saying it's, it's it's, it's not sustainable. In truth, due to the many desires of the eight Sahara's persuasions, he will do numerous stupid things, foolish things, that no rational person would agree with at all. In other words, it's not going to be limited to one. It's not, this is not a one-time narrative. It's not a one-time rationalization. Once the person does it and realize, and with the understanding or with the belief that no one's going to know, no one's going to find out, I'm safe, that's going to lead to more and more behavior in that genre. I'm okay, no one's going to know. So it is only, let's continue, it's only the eight Sahara, the evil inclination, that makes him go against his own reason and his creator's reason, impelling him to, I'm going to say, call this foolishness, right? It's the eight Sahara that says, go against what you know to be right, what you know to make sense, go against what God wants, because no one's going to find out about it. And that's foolish, people then become suspicious. In other words, when a person con- consistently acts in a way that is inconsistent with their own values, at some point, people become suspicious. They become curious about his true nature. We see evidently. In other words, we see tangibly. It plays out in real life that a word, a movement, can betray oneself. Somebody says something and it's a little off. Somebody does something. Hmm, suspicious, right? A, movement, a word, a movement can betray oneself. This is how you give yourself, give yourself away, right? Revealing what lies deep within that it is not good, right? So, so inevitably, a person betrays oneself. Like what the do they say about... Cri- eye yeah, either not making eye contact or making eye contact with... The, whatever, just... Whatever, whatever... He's being super vague here, which I think is... I like, I like that it's vague because we can all apply it on our own. You know, it, it it opens up the imagination, if you will, to, to many scenarios. And, and the point is, he's not saying what exactly it's going to be, but at some point, the person will give it away. Um, we are not discussing actual sinful speech, like lying, malicious gossip, slander, or vulgarity. In other words, we're not saying that the person's going to give it away in, in an obvious, you know, doing that same Indiscretion in front of other people. No. Much more subtle. We refer to an innocent story told casually, nothing more it would seem than idle chatter. But actually, this conversation could reveal the inner evil. Just what the person shares in a narrative can reveal where they are inside. The point is, if this is who we are, who we've become, at some point it's gonna leak out in some in some way, even if the person doesn't realize it. Does that make sense? Even a look. He says, bottom line of 184, even a look can reveal so much about a person. Sometimes, 186, sometimes one looks deliberately and eagerly at something he ought not be looking at. And with this, he demonstrates the full degree of the evil within him. Or someone looks a little too long at something, and you're like, all right, so then what's going on? Right? So just, just even a look, not saying anything, not doing anything, just where, they, where they're looking can reveal so much about what is actually going on inside. So a person says, I'll do this, that, or the other, but no one's going to know about it. It's fine. I feel safe. This is all about feeling safe. Right? This is not about, um, it's not about right or wrong. It's about feeling safe. The person says, I know it's wrong, but I feel safe because no one's going to find out. So that makes it, to me, that makes it less, it feels less wrong because I feel safer. It's just me, whatever. No one no one knows, no one's aware. So first of all, the rabbi said, Rabbi Yokohman Zake said, What about God? But but the Rebbe says, that's Rabbi Ocheman Zake, but the author says, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe says, forget about God. I mean, don't really forget about God, but but even if we're not thinking about even if we're thinking about the actual rationalization itself, the story that you're telling yourself, no one's gonna find out. They will find out. At some point down the line, it the ruse will be up. And now he goes back to what we said before, second paragraph 186. Even if people are are not aware of one's personal deficiencies, everything is known to God. And that's circling back to the other point. This is what the rabbi said, right? Even if people aren't aware, so even if somehow this person is able to conceal it and avoid, you know, revealing it or tipping his hand about what's going on inside them, Nonetheless, God God knows about it. As is written in Jeremiah, if a man hides in secret places, will I not see him? That's what God says. Like, can you really hide from me? Not happening. There is an expression. All is revealed and known before you. Nothing is concealed from you. Nothing is hidden from your eyes. God who does know reveals his actions and makes them known. That last line is powerful. In other words, number one, God knows. And number two, because God knows, God has a way, even if you don't tip your hand, God has a way of tipping your hand of making it known to others. And where, where is this idea from? It's from Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, where it says, and this is the quote, it's an indented quote, whoever desecrates the heavenly name in secret, that means whoever engages in indiscretions privately, punishment or um, public knowledge of such is meted out to him, or knowledge of such is meted out to him in public. Right? It doesn't mean a public flogging or anything, it just means that it's going to come out into the open. God has a way of moving things out into the open to kind of just get it out there. Rashi on Avot, you know, Rashi is the primary biblical commentary. He's also on the Talmud and the Mishnah. So Rashi has a commentary on Pirkei Avot and Ethics of the Fathers. Rashi explains the following: Whoever desecrates the heavenly name in secret, that means he sins privately. In the parentheses for the definition here, cannot be the literal one. Usually, desecrating the heavenly name means doing something that like that on, on, a, on a large scale um, desecrates God's name. But that can't be, because it literally says desecrates the heavenly name in secret. How can you large scale desecrate God's name in secret? So it's not referring to desecrating God's name in the typical sense. It means an indiscretion, right? That's what he says over here. For the definition here cannot be the literal one desecration. The name must be public, or else it is not desecration, right? If it's if it's not public, it's not desecration. So the intention here is, the, is private sinning, just personal indiscretion. And so the, the Mishnah says, so whoever desecrates the heavenly name in secret, whoever engages in indiscretion secretly, punishment is meted out to him in public. God publicly discloses his shame, as is written in Proverbs, hatred is covered with deceit, yet his evil will be revealed in public. In other words, what God hates is covered with deceit. So what, what the indiscretion is covered up, but his evil will be revealed in public. And the parenthesis says, if one does his deeds in darkness and conceals in the murky darkness this act despised by God, eventually God will disclose his evil publicly that all may recognize that he is wicked, as Rashi says. Why such stringency? So that the name of heaven will not be desecrated through him, that it not be said, have you noticed so-and-so who is so wise and does so much good, yet he suffers with this and that? Interesting twist on why God does this. So that no one should say, look at this tzaddik, such a good person, and he's having such a difficult life. God says, "You think he's such a tzaddik? Oh, you should know what he's doing at home." Okay, so that's 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 Rashi on the Mishnah. The point is, you know, even if we don't have that rationale of why God does it, the point is that, as you and I know, people only typically listen. Do we know of everybody who who you know uh, went to the grave with indiscretion? No. Okay, so maybe it's not hundred percent, but typically. People can only get away with stuff, keep things quiet for a certain amount of time. We've seen in recent years how stuff comes out, right? We've seen with uh, we've seen this in in the public sphere how people were doing things behind closed doors for a long time and 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 abusing power, abusing other and and ultimately it comes out. Eventually it comes out, and, and and it's and 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 there's a and there's a big downfall, and and it's and it's a and it's a pretty big deal. So. bear right, it anymore if a person has really like, let it know it. you know you can't bear it. Right, and, and the person themselves will betray themselves. Right. You have criminals. This is a criminal psychology thing where criminals will at some point try to get caught. I've been listening, to, I listened to a podcast about about some arsons in California that were, I hope I'm not giving too much away. If anyone's interested in the podcast, sorry. Spoiler alert! Don't listen. Huh? It was done by the, by the investigator. Yes. yes. It's a crazy story. And 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 the criminal psychologist, and how was he caught? He wrote a book about the crimes. <laughs> he wrote a book about the crimes. About the arsons in Southern California, right? And about how it was started by a fire investigator, by a fire I think he did fire chief instead of fire investigator, but it was someone on the inside who was doing it and setting fires. It was basically a confession. But he wrote it as an act of fiction, so the question, as, a, as, an, as an as a as a as a uh, as a work of fiction, so the question that the criminal psychologist is trying to figure out is why why did he do that, why did he write the book, and then he shopped it around, and so one conclusion is he was trying to get caught, he was battling against this inner demon, if you will, that like was starting the fires. Part of him was the guy who stops the fires. Part of his part of him was the guy who started the fires. This was an inner battle, and. In one moment, or at one time, the part of him that wanted to stop the arsonist, the inner arsonist, wrote a book to expose the inner arsonist. Are you with me on this? But isn't this all of us? Maybe not to that degree. And he, people died in his fires. He was eventually convicted of, of, of murder. Um, homicide. But, um, but isn't this our story? We have part of us that wants to do the wrong thing, part of us that wants to stop that from happening, And the question is, are we willing to out the one who's, the part of us that's doing the wrong thing so that we can no longer get away with it? So we can no longer do it, right? This is is like a pup, this is coming clean about something. This is about a, this is, instead of keeping something secret, it's about opening up and putting it out there because hiding is actually the most devastating part of it. So much energy. But not only that, but it, it, it keeps the challenge shrouded in darkness. The moment we're open about it is the moment that we can, it doesn't transform us into tzaddikim. We're not perfect suddenly because we've, but it helps. So what you, I believe what you're saying is correct. That we also sometimes will, 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 will reveal it because we know that that's the only way we can, we can, we can, we can continue with, with this or I or have a chance to act in a better way, in a different way. Okay, so let's continue. So again, just so, so just we have the thread here clear. So chapter discourse 12 is all about the folly of, I'll get away with it, no one will know. And he says, slow it down. Number one, everyone's going to know about it at some point. You'll, you'll betray yourself. People will notice. People pick up on this stuff. God knows anyway, and God will help bring that out into the open. So if if again, it's not just it's very important to recognize what, what what this book is about. It's not about pointing fingers at anyone else. This book is, com- is completely designed for us to have contrary thoughts or or opposing thoughts in our mind when a negative thought rises up. When a negative thought arises, oh, let's do this, and oh, and, and no one will know about it, we should have a counteracting thought that says, one second. Not so, not so simple. Not, not so likely that, I'm, that no one's going to know about it, and then maybe we'll make the right choice. The fact, so let's continue. This, he summarized it here. Bottom paragraph on 186. The fact that it entices him, that no one will see, is just more nonsense of the eight Sahara. In other words, this idea that, oh, no one's going to know about it, that's still more foolishness. It's nonsense. We know that those who are more refined and intelligent are not as susceptible to foolishness as our of men. By the way, that could be debated. That's another... I, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with with the with the Rebbe here on this. I'm just saying that it, that uh, intelligent people sometimes can rationalize even more elaborately than unintelligent. I'm not, not. I'm not judging intelligence. I'm just saying that the more active one's mind is, typically, the more they can make sense of something that they know or that anyone else would say doesn't make sense. The more you can spin spin tails. but.
0: Not
1: that they're... Not that they're evil or stupid. They just know so much that isn't true. Right. Exactly. So, the more we know, the more we can know the other way. It's like a horse that's really, really fast. It can go down the right path fast. It can go down the wrong path also very fast. So... He, but he says a little a different angle here. We know that those who are more refined and intelligent, I guess refined is the key word here, are not as susceptible to foolishness as our coarser men. Emotional people, because they are 188, impassioned and excitable, are more liable to be receptive to nonsense. They delude themselves more easily. The eight Sahara, being animal like and emotive, entices man in various ways. I'm gonna tell you my take on this paragraph in a moment. Whoever follows the guidance of the Eight Sahara simply accepts its folly and persuasion. He imagines that no one realizes his misdeeds. What I think is what my understanding of this is what I said uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes ago, and that is the more instinctive we are in our actions, the more we act on, oh, wow, this looks good, this feels good, let me do it, no one's going to find out. We, we're not thinking like down, We're not thinking consequences. We're just, in the moment, the more likely we are to make a negative choice or to allow a negative choice to unfold. Whereas the more we slow it down and think about it and think it through, the more we'll realize, one second, Hold on. People will find out about it. I will be exposed. So if my if my motivation to do it, or if what's going to get me over the hump to do it, is because no one will know, let me just assume that somebody at some point will know about it. And now let me make the right choice.
0: It says here we know that those who are more refined and intelligent are not as susceptible. Well, that's like Germany. I mean, they were very refined.
1: I know. That's I. I know. I have the same question on the on the on the language here. Now it could be. I don't remember what the Hebrew says. It could be that this is a product of the translation kind of slanting it in a way, in a direction that it wasn't intended. But even as written, my take on it is it's not intelligent. It's not like, oh, intelligent people don't make mistakes. No. Well, my, my my take on this is that when you slow it down and really think about the reality and think about the fact that, that no one can really get away with something forever and that Likely, I will be exposed, and likely people will find out about it. That will, that will act as hopefully as a buffer for me to go into that to to wade into that negative territory. That's my take on it. I, to be consistent throughout the chapter, I think that's that's my only way to understand that last chapter. But you're you're free to understand it as you wish. I, I choose not to understand, and I can't understand it as saying, well, someone who's intelligent doesn't have this challenge. I think, on the contrary, someone who's intelligent. It can have this challenge more. I think it's about slowing it down and not impulsively making that choice. That's my understanding. It's it and the impulse is the impulse is calling emotion, even though it could be intellectual impulse. Also, the intellectual impulse would be like, oh, I want to do it. I I'm, I really want to do this thing. I know it's not right. I know that. Fine, but no one's going to find out about it. Let's do it. It quickly happens and we don't have a chance to stop ourselves. So as I said, the whole book is about slowing down the process, understanding that a process is happening. It's not just happening, there's a process that's happening. There's a dialogue. If I can slow down the dialogue, I can throw in more arguments against the action and hopefully come out with a different outcome, yeah
0: it doesn't say intelligent it says refined refined yeah. And, assuming, yeah and assuming what that translation of refined that has to do some sort of like moral refinement. Yeah. right
1: there's a morality and a refinement yeah
0: just say intelligence also you know that is solid
1: you know what's interesting in the I'm now looking at the Hebrew um, side it's interesting because and you know what I'll put it, put it back up for the benefit of of everyone online. Give me a second here. Let me share this again. If you look on the Hebrew side, um, oh, I can't highlight it. It's not OCR. Okay. It's the third line in the Hebrew. It says, De Elu shehem Mezek Dak. It's the third line from the bottom of the page on 187 in the Hebrew. The Elushaim, those that are Bale Mezik Dak. Those that are of a refined character. A mention. He says it in Yiddish. He doubles down in Yiddish. Edel. Edel means refined. Edel a menschen. Like... Refinement. Ed, huh? refinement. Re- refi- mench, right? a refined man. Refined right? Refine, refined human beings. Uvali seichel. And intelligence. So he throws that in almost like after two phrases of refinement. Uvali seichel. And, my, and therefore, what I'm, the way I understand it is not, it's not about intelligence. It's a refinement and the ability to think things through. It's not about how smart you are. It's the ability and the willingness to think things through and not act just impulsively. And I think the contrast is versus acting impulsively where, you know, the, a, the red flag is, oh, shoot, I know it's wrong. And then we get, we, we get over that red flag by saying, okay, but no one's going to find out about it. I'm okay. So he's saying, let's slow that down. So that the red flag of wait, this is wrong actually becomes a barrier and we should tell ourselves a different story. One second. I know it's wrong, and I you know, somebody may not find out, about it, but they might, and it's still wrong and God knows about it, and da 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 and hopefully then once we slow it down, then it's no fun anyway. Because it's not impulsive. So, ugh, boring. It's boring to not sin impulsively. So then all right, takes the takes the wind out of our sails and hopefully we can make a better decision. Does that make sense? So how does it connect with my whole preamble about about ethics? What he doesn't speak about in this chapter is the fact that things are objectively wrong. But of course, that's the bedrock of the conversation. The bedrock is it's wrong. So we know it's categorically and objectively wrong. The only question is, are we going to convince ourselves that even though it's wrong, it's not so wrong? Why is it not so wrong? No one's going to know. No one's going to get hurt. That's out. I'll deal with it on my own self. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll work it through. I'll work through the guilt. I'll be fine. And if other people, if accountability to others is what's going to keep you in check, so then just know at some point you'll be accountable to others. That's it. In other words, if, if lack of accountability is what's going to get you to make the bad choice, so then just know that there will be at some point accountability because it's impossible to, to not have that accountability. Does that make sense? Is
0: that like David... Uh, sending Bathsheba's husband to the front line.
1: Yeah, that was quite the story, huh? And then
0: the punishment was he
1: wouldn't be able to build the temple. Well, I don't uh, know if don't th- I, the temple was more cuz of general his warring uh yeah, his warring nature, but him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, David, that's a it's a it's quite the story. You guys know the story, right? David, yeah. Bathsheba, yeah. He met a woman who was married. He looked out of his palace and saw a woman bathing on the rooftop. I don't know why, rooftop rooftop bath or something like that. And uh, he asked his guards, whatever, who she is, whatever. He called her over. And they were together. Turns out she was married. Turns out her husband was not home. Why not? Because he was on the front lines. Sorry, he was in he was in, he was a soldier in the army so David says he starts thinking quick he says okay call him call him in um, no way I think I may have missed part of the story I think they're together and then a few months later she tells him she's pregnant or if David finds out she's pregnant and he realizes this is a problem because the husband's hasn't been home in a while. So how's she pregnant? So he quickly calls the husband from the from the from battle, and said the king called you. He meets with the king. The king says, "You're such a good soldier. I want to give you um, what do they call it when you have a break from 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 R-N-O. what is it R and R? Yeah, a little R and R. Sure, a little break, a little hiatus, a little leave, okay. and you can go home." Go home with your wife and enjoy. He's hoping that, you know, and, and then in like in seven months, eight, whatever, baby could be born premature also. You know, who knows? Whatever. Like, no one will find out. Meanwhile, meanwhile, back at the ranch, or not back at the ranch, the the um the husband doesn't go home. So Say, system, why don't you go home? He says, Look, um, it's not right for me to go home and be with my wife when my, when my brothers are on the front lines. It's not I can't I can't do it. It's not right. I couldn't live with myself. I'm going to go home vacation time when my brethren or when my fellow soldiers are, are fighting. So the king says, you have to. He said, no. So the king said, okay, fine. So go back, go back to battle. He said, but first take this letter. Take, he wrote up a letter. He said, take this letter, sealed letter. Give it to the general. What did the letter say? Put this man who handed you the letter on the front lines. And he died. He was killed. And that's the story.
0: And he's free to marry them. At this point. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the prophet comes to David, Nathan the prophet, and chastised David. Gave him a parable. So there was a man who was wealthy that had everything he wanted and another man that had just one small goat. And the wealthy man was hungry. Instead of eating from his own flock, he went over to the guy, to the guy that had only one goat he slaughtered his goat and ate his goat. What do you say to that? Kill him! Kill the wealthy guy! How dare, what a chutzpah! Not Hanavi said, You're that man! You're that man! Here's a guy with his wife, and you took his. You're that guy! is this King David, the famous King David? Yeah. yeah. And you know what King David said in response to this? Chatasi Lashem, <laughs> I have sinned before God. That's what he said. He owned it. You know what Adam said when confronted with his sin? My wife made, Eve made me do it. You know what Eve said? The serpent made me do it. You know what King Saul said when he messed up? The people made me do it. You know what David said? I've sinned. That's why he's King David. Not because he was not because he never he, not because he was perfect. But because he owned.
0: He had two of the major opas, idolatry. Like
1: Murder and, and Listen, if you want to get into the halakha of it, then you could say the guy disobeyed the king. So he was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? No, what's the, when you disobey the king? Treason. High treason. So he was guilty of high treason. That's why he was killed. If you want to get technical, I can give you technicalities. But David didn't do that. He didn't get into the, He didn't excuse himself. He didn't, and he could have. There's other, I forget already, the commentaries. They, they, they explain why, they, whatever, they, ex- they give explanations. But David himself didn't say any of that. <laughs> the rest of his life, he fasted and prayed and wrote psalms. That's, that's what he did the rest of his life. So that's why he's King David. Yeah. That's why, King David is not because he was perfect. King David is King David because when, confront, when, when confronted with his own imperfection, he owned it. Who does that? And changed and, and, and was contrite the rest of his life. Who does that? That's, that's the mark of a hero. The mark of a hero is not someone who's perfect, because if you find someone who's perfect and I'll tell you they're a liar, or you're just not looking close enough. The mark of a hero is not someone who's perfect, it's someone who acknowledges their faults and works to better themselves in an honest, authentic way, without deflection, without blame, without shifting. That's what makes King David King David. So you hear the story about King David, you're like, oh my God, this is King David? David, Melech Yisrael, Chai, Chai, V'Kayim. Why? Why are we seeing like King David to live and and be strong, you know? The Davidic dynasty from this guy? Show me someone who can own what they've done, take responsibility, and, and work on change. That's a strong, that's a hero, that's a strong person. Okay, all right, so we ended in perhaps an unexpected place. But it all comes back to, um, yeah, David's actions were exposed. Hey, we're talking about it. Certainly certainly it became known literally thousands of years later. We're we're talking about David's, we're airing David's um, laundry. So it's not about David, it's about us. It's about us. When we are when we are faced with a choice, we're faced with a temptation, and we we quickly tell ourselves it's fine. No one's going to know about it. I'll be safe. Let's let's slow that down, and let's think about it, and let's remember. One second, not so simple. Number one, people will find out about it. Can't stay. Things don't stay hidden forever. I'll betray the truth of who I am. It's going to come out if I become if I'm if I'm if I'm a, if I'm. A, um, if there's, a, if there's this, this lack of morality within, it's going to come out. And um, God knows, and of course, objectively, it's wrong. All right, thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah Coffee. I hate to end on a note, objectively it's wrong, on, that, on those words. Um, may we make good decisions and do the right thing. All right, thank you for joining me today for Come on Coffee. Before you guys go, very quickly, very important announcement, like V-I-A, very important announcement. Next Tuesday night, this is huge. We have the incredible good fortune of hosting on Zoom. It's a Zoom event. She has an incredibly busy, busy schedule. Judge Rachel or Rachel Fryer, Ruchi Fryer. She is the first ever Hasidic um, woman to be appointed in a um, uh, public office position in the U.S. She is a criminal court judge in New York City. She's incredibly inspiring. She even started, you may have seen the documentary, 93 Queen, she started an all-female ambulance service in the Orthodox neighborhood. You may know this, you may not know this, something called Hatzalah. Anybody familiar with Hatzalah? Hatzalah is a Jewish ambulance service. Well, she started a women's version of that. So for women want to call and have women uh, ambulance, there was a tremendous pushback in the community. Which is a complicated, complicated topic. She is a v- she's incredibly strong and has um, has done tremendous things. So join me, and us next Tuesday the nineteenth, eight p.m. for um, Judge Rachel Fryer. The event is called Superwoman. the Superwoman of the Hasidic Superwoman of Night Court, and that's based on a title the the title of an article in the New York Times that featured her. A few years back. So join us then. It's going to be incredible. Also, very quick announcement, a very important announcement. Next week, I will not be in town. I'll be, uh, please God, traveling. So I will not be here for a cabal and coffee. So we do not have class next week. So that's an important announcement. Mark your calendars. No KNC um, next week. But we, we will be back, please God, the following week. All right? Good stuff. All right. We'll see you guys. Don't forget this week we have a full slate of classes. Check your local listings for more information. All right. Take care, everybody. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, our, our in-person crew, Susan, David, Toba, Linda, Joy, and Alex. Great to see you guys. Shavuot, Tov. Have a great week. Shavuot, All right. And of course, great to see you guys.